So one thing I love about the uh, technological age we live in right now is consumer reviews. Um, what Taylor Swift is to boyfriends, I am to watches in that there's never one good enough for me. Uh, and so I'm super picky about watches and, and I love, I spent actually like an hour the other night. My kids were asleep and Sarah was gone. Um, and I just looked at reviews of watches for an hour. I scoured review sites, blogs, consumer reviews, forums. I looked for smoke signals online, anything to tell me um, what sets this watch apart from other watches in order to analyze and discern according to my ridiculous standards that can't actually be met in a watch. Um, and I actually did the same thing with my van. I have to get new tires on my minivan, uh, which is a big deal for me. I love the minivan. That's right, Odyssey Brothers right here. Uh, and, and I went to this website, and maybe you guys have done it when you, when you go buy tires for your cars. Um, they have things where you could compare tires, and you select it, and that website puts up four different types of tires for you to look and see how they compare to one another. And you try to find the standard among these tires, which like this is obviously the tire for me. And, and it's inviting you to judge these tires and to compare them um, to others, compare them to some sort of standard. And when we stop and think about it, as I was here in the middle of just loving the age we live in with technology, I said, isn't the internet just kind of materializing towards inanimate objects, what we already do in our hearts towards other people? Right? I mean, aren't we all by nature just little judges? We judge people, we judge things, we judge flavors, we judge smells, we judge classes and teachers. There's a Rate My Professor website. Um, has anyone ever found a University of Montana professor on that website? Okay, there's a lot now. Apparently, in my youth, there was not any. Uh, so you could do that, and it's inviting you to do it. And, and part of this, this judging we do, it's been hardwired into us at a young age, right? Uh, well, growing up, we, we took in school standardized tests. And the point of those was not just to see how you were, but it was to see how you were in comparison to some sort of standard. Our parents wanted to know where we stood against that standard. Our teachers wanted to know. Um, the federal government wanted to know where you stood against that standard. Do we know what that standard was? Did your parents know what that standard was? Did your teachers know what that standard was? Probably not, but they wanted to see where you measured up to that. Where did you fit in regard to this backdrop? And we do this every time we get a test back, right? When we get a test back, um, the first thing we do is, is we say, well, what's the curve? Where do I fall in the swing of the curve? I remember there was one girl in my class in high school who always set the curve, and it was just like you cringed every time you heard her name. And you want to know where you were in relation to that. Where did I measure to the average? Who did worse than me? Who did better than me, right? The first thing you do is you ask your friend next to you, well, what'd you get? I remember uh, in seminary, and so here I am supposed to be learning humility and about Jesus, and I was on my, my online portal, and I saw there was a button that said course averages, and it took me, like, I couldn't even finish mentally processing what it said before I clicked on it. I'm like, I want to see where I am in relation to the rest of these chumps, and there was no information. I think what they did is they just wanted to see who's the arrogant person who clicks on that the most, and it was me. Like every week for the last four years in different classes, I'm looking to see, and they've put no information, but really when I'm going there, I'm not really interested to see how other people are doing. And even more than that, I'm not really interested to see who did better than me. I want to see who I did better than. I want to see who did worse than me. You see, for me, and I don't know if I'm just the chief sinner here, I don't really care about standards that are above me. But I know I want to be seen as better than other people. That's because I want to be the standard. I want to see how people measure to me. I want to judge people according to how I do. And today in the book of Romans, Paul's going to help us understand standards. Because all in our own ways, we interact with them. He's going to tell us why we desire standards. Even if you're in here, I'm like, I don't desire a standard. You do. We all desire standards. And more than just desiring them, we all seek to submit to them. He's also going to tell us what those standards mean in regards to us being judged. When we judge others, what does that mean for them? And when we are judged, what does that mean for us? And more importantly, what we're going to see tonight is this. This is kind of what we're diving to find out. Is that our judgmental hearts point to God's standard truth and leave us 
needy for gospel grace. Our judgmental hearts, that inclination we have at a young age to be judgmental, ultimately points us to God's standard truth and leaves us needy, desperate, and longing for gospel grace. So let's pray. Lord, we come before you um, tonight, um, and we ask that you be gracious to us. Um, We have already seen that the desired uh, response of what Paul is writing is that we desire a grace. And so we thank you, Lord, that you are not one who is stingy with your grace or with your affection, but you desire to give that to the people who are yours, who call upon your name, Lord. So we ask tonight that you, by the work of your Holy Spirit, equip us to be those who are yours. You stir in our hearts an affection for you, an ability to call for you, and to rejoice in your beautiful salvation. We thank you for this campus, Lord. We pray that what we learn tonight not only impacts the way we think, but also the way we worship, the way we live, the way we evangelize. We pray all these things in your holy name. Amen. So, Paul today is going to get personal with us, okay? Um, Last week, those of you who were here last week, Paul kind of pulled the rug out from under us, and it was this ultimately leveling passage where he says, all have sinned. You're all sinners. None of you is without excuse. Um, and he, he hammered on us how awful we, are, we were as sinners. But Paul knows, he knows that just saying that in and of itself isn't sufficient. Because he knows that we are not only judges, we're also justifiers. And so Paul gives this thing telling us that we are haters of God, that we are enemies of God, that we are dead in our sin. But he knows in our minds, already as we're reading this, well, I'm not as bad as they are. Well, certainly he can't be talking about me here. There are other people who you look at, and those are the people who are needy for forgiveness. Those are the people who are stuck in sin. When I say think of the worst sinner in your own life, none of you is thinking of yourself. That's something we all have to overcome here. Well, Paul is going to take away that excuse from us today. He says this in Romans 2 verse 1, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And so Paul, he he uses a singular word here. You can't tell English because singular and plural are the same. But he says you, it's actually singular. So he's like, you person, making that, that exception, justifying yourself, you are without excuse. You're the sinner I'm talking to. Each and every one of you. And he comes right at you and he says, when you judge people, when you start looking at people's sin and you start finding that standard in and of yourself, he says you're really judging yourself. Now why does he say that? Right? He's being really logical here. So it takes some listening and some reading to what Paul's saying. He's saying you're judging yourself because we ourselves have committed things worthy of being judged. Right? Think about it this way. It's a little different on a human perspective compared to what we've done before God. But if you're being indicted for federal tax fraud before a judge and you find out that very same judge is being indicted for felony entrapment, don't you feel a little slighted? Like, who are you, who's a criminal, to judge me as a criminal? There's some fishy things there. He's probably not a good judge. Because he sinned in a grievous way, the same way you were sinning in. And so what Paul is saying here is when we judge others, we're actually condemning ourselves because we too are sinful. We recognize that. But Paul's not doing this. He's not saying, when you judge people, you're condemning yourself, therefore stop judging. He's not saying that actually. He could, but he's actually going to point this in a different direction. He's actually going to take this logic and he's going to prove something else. And this is what he's going to prove. The first point we're going to see tonight is that our judgment, our judging hearts, reveal a truth about God and a truth about us. He's not going to say don't judge, but he's saying when you're judging, when you're looking at people, because there are actually parts in Paul, in Corinthians, where he says you should judge those who are in the church. If you see someone in the church who claims to be Christian who's sinning, it's, it's not loving to just let them sin. That's dangerous to them. You should judge that. You should hold them to a different standard. But he's not making that argument here. What he wants us to to be aware of is what our judging hearts say about God and say about us. Immediately in verse 2, Paul says this, We know that the judgment of God 
Our judgment, God's judgment. The judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So if you have, I'm not going to go over, if you have your Bibles open, you want to see what those things are, look back at Romans 1, verses 28 through 32. There's a list of things. Those who practice those things will be judged rightly by God. And this is really interesting, okay? My son is almost three. He's already a little judge. He, wears, he, he weighs fairness. He weighs equality. He barters. If I do this, can I do this? If I poop in the toilet, can I have a poop cookie? That's what I called it today after he pooped in the toilet. I'm like, I should find a different adjective for his cookie than poop cookie. Um, but he ate his poop cookie uh, and he loved it. He connives. He's always trying to find these like creases in your argument. And I didn't teach him that. I didn't sit down and I was like, hey, Owen, this is how you leverage your situation to extort your parents for poop cookies. I probably modeled that at some point in my life, but I never taught it to him. No one ever taught you to be judgmental. And yet we are, in little ways and in big ways. So why is it, why do you think this is? Why do you think that none of us have encountered a person who has failed to judge anyone? Why do you think, as, as part of our human nature, we all fall into the trap of judging others? of comparing standards, of weighing right and wrong. Because here's the thing. Paul just told us why. Because we know in our hearts, at the core of who we are, that God judges. That's what he said. For we know the judgment of God falls rightly on those who practice such things. Why do we know this? Genesis 1.27, God creates man and woman, and this is what he says. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, when it says image, it doesn't mean that we look like God. God's not a person except in Jesus Christ. God doesn't have a body or eyes. He's spirit. He's a divine being. So when it says image, it's not that God is rolling around in heaven with zits and acne and sporadic facial hair. What it means is that part of who God is has been stamped on in a formative way humans in a way that's distinct from any other aspect of creation. Animals didn't get the image. Birds, our animals, also didn't get the image. Plants didn't get the image. Dirt didn't get the image. Water didn't get the image. Man and woman got the image of God in us. And here's the thing. Humans will judge everything. You're going to go through your life judging a lot of things because you are made in the image of a God typified by righteousness and justice. It's not an accident that we're always weighing scales in our own lives and in our others' lives. Is that fair what happened to him? Is that a fair price? Is that a fair way to respond to the crime? We judge because whether we accept it or not, we were made in the image of the true judge who judges, who by his standard of himself. God is in himself righteous. God is justice. God is righteousness. God is holy. God is pure. God is truth. And because he embodies all of those things, there is no one more worthy to judge rightly than God himself. And while we in our fallen state, right, that's what Paul talked about. He talked about how nasty we are when we come out and we reject God's truth. None of us are born as believers. We're born as people who reject God's truth. And while we may not realize, while sin may smear that image, maim it, and render it nearly invisible in our own lives, there is not one person who fails to feel the pull of justice and judgment in his own heart. We've been magnetized to be judges because our God is a judge, a good judge, a holy judge a righteous judge. And so the truth about God, when we start judging in our own hearts, the truth we know about God is that God is the just God. My scales are skewed. God's scales are perfect and right and true. He doesn't overreact. He doesn't hand out punishment lightly. He handles it perfectly. We are condemned in judging because we ourselves are fallen. But God 
is right in judging because he himself is perfect. That's the truth about God. The truth about us, though, we see in verses 2 through 5. So I'm repeating verse 2 again for the sake of context. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you, in here, again, he's attacking you, gently, through a book, 2,000 years later, um, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, that's not repenting, um, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So the truth about God is that he's the just God. The truth about us is that our propensity to judge only confirms that we stand in danger of God's right, just judgment. God is true in judging. We're the object of that. We're being judged by God. We who hold others to a standard of right and wrong as co-sinners, will we not also be held to a standard of right and wrong by the one who's never sinned? Right? We have expectations. We expect James, who sinned against me, to answer for his sin. Do we not expect us to answer to God for our sin? That's what Paul's saying. There's a break in your logic here. You're holding Tim accountable for sliding you a dollar. You murdered his son through your unbelief. You'll be held responsible for that. You see, it's a funny argument that Paul assumes here. And that's really, so Paul's writing in this rhetoric of the Greek culture, and he's, he's, he's arguing with this man, with you, in your own mind. He's thinking up thoughts that you're thinking to justify what Paul's saying. Well, that's not me. Well, that's not really how I would put it. And he's responding to those. And so, so what he's responding to here is that oftentimes we can, can justify ourselves and think that, well, if I'm really that bad, if I'm as bad as Paul says I am, why wouldn't God just kill me now? If he's this sovereign ruler, judger, why am I still here? And that sounds so silly to say, doesn't it? We say, we never think that. But how many times do we think that? How many times do we look at our life and breath and being and we say, I must be doing okay. Right? We look to our livelihood and we say, well, I'm, I'm alive. Things are going good. I got good friends. Got a good job. Getting a good education. Feel comfortable. Feel loved. Have an iPhone 6. Everything's okay. But look at what Paul says in verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? These merciful words of this just judge not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. You see, last week, Paul destroyed us with the reality of our current state. Without Christ in the flesh, he says, you are a hater of God, you are insolent, you are haughty, you are evil, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. We deserve to die. See, in the garden, what did God say to Adam and Eve? Eat from the tree and you will surely die, okay? That's Genesis 3. When did Adam and Eve die? Genesis 7-ish, okay? They didn't die immediately. What a grace on God's part. Did they die spiritually in that moment? Absolutely. But God gave them an extended grace in that period. You see, you have that grace. You are born destined to die. You are born already under the death penalty. And this is grace that we live right now. And what Paul is saying is this time, don't presume God's kind and I'll figure it out one day. There's an urgency to Paul. He says this time exists. You are in this moment so that you might find your way to God and live. So now, Paul knows where we're going. Judgment and wrath life. Let's check out life. How do we get here, right? Even if you're skeptical of God and religion and of faith and of sin, and you say, I don't really know what sin is. It's hard to peg down sin, but, but if there's a solution to it, let's, let's hear it. How do I avoid this wrath? 
this day of judgment. Paul continues. Romans 6, or Romans 2, excuse me, 6 through 11. He will render, that's God, each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. This is great news, isn't it? This is what we've always wanted from a young age. From the moment we had the scale of justice in our mind, that's what we want. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Do good, receive peace and life. Do evil, receive evil and wrath. God shows no partiality. That's what, he's, that's what Paul's saying. This, this beautiful truth of this just judge. Do good, get good. Do evil, get evil. You see, in God's economy, good things always happen to good people. Evil things always happen to evil people. That's the way it is. That's how it goes. And this sounds really good, doesn't it? If this was like our campaign for a Supreme Court justice, man, we want that, wouldn't we? It's the epitome of fairness. But there's a problem with what Paul just described. He's going to press into this truth a little further. And the second point is this that different standards suffer from the same problem. You view life differently. You have a different philosophy of what sin is, of who you are. You all suffer from the same problem. So Paul, we see in there, twice he says the Jew first and also the Greek. Paul's writing this book to an audience split, not between grizzlies and bobcats, but between Jews and Greeks. Two ethnic circles. Jews being the people who in the Old Testament received this revelation from God that said this is the law. When he says the law, he means, if you want to live righteous, you'll follow my righteous law. What does a perfect person look like? Look at the law. How does a perfect person act? Perfect person act. It's like Dr. Seuss up in here. How does a perfect person act? Look at the law. How does a perfect person worship? Look at the law. How will you be perfect and pure? Look at the law. This is kind of be summarized for those of you who grew up in a Christian background with the Ten Commandments, right? The Decalogue. That's what it means to live as God's perfect people. But by contrast to the Jews, there's also these Gentiles. And think about these Gentiles. They're non-Jews. They're not following the law. But now these Gentiles, since this guy named Jesus came around, they're claiming access to Jesus. They're claiming fellowship with God. They're claiming to receive God's love and his perfection without following the law. So Jews seek to follow the law. To earn God's love. Gentiles are not following the law, but claiming to have God's love. And this divide here in terms of titles, like Jews and Greeks, might be archaic to us. We don't run into a modern day Jew-Greek divide in class. We don't think in terms of that. But actually, our cultures can divide in two different ways here. Because really what, what Paul's talking about is two camps. There's the nonconformists and the conformists. And when it comes to how we have standards in our lives, each and every one of you falls into one of those two. You're either a conformist or a non-conformist. You see, our parents lived in a generation where there was an assumption of a common, at least in America, there was an assumption of a common code of ethics we abided by, right? Go to work, love your family, go to church, drive an American-made car, Right? That was the standard that our parents sought to follow. We, however, are living in a time where, where our parents were conformist to this American dream thing. What did an American look like? That's what we wanted to live like. Our generation is more nonconformist. There's not really a written code. What's the standard? In our generation, when you're on this campus, what's the standard for right and wrong? There's not some external set of rules imposed by religion or legislation that our culture looks to and say that's what we're measured up against. That's what we're trying to do. That's what we're trying to not do. You see, today though, in being a nonconformist, it's not that we don't have a standard, it's just that our standards have shifted. 
in our own culture, typically, we're the standard. We are our own moral code. I was falfing the other day, and one of the falf baskets has a sticker on it. It said, if it feels good, do it. That's us becoming the standard. What's the standard of right and wrong if it feels good? Who knows if it feels good? You do. Who, who's to tell you it doesn't feel good? No one. I'm me. I'm the one experiencing the sensation. I'm going to do it if it feels good. That's our creed. That's our standard. And we live in a culture which is wonderfully self-obsessed. And while we may look, see, this is where it gets tricky, we may look less judgmental than our parents' generation. But we are just the same in judging. We're just stealthier in how we do it. You see, rather than saying you can't do that because good people don't do that, you say you can't do that because I can't do that. You can't do that because I won't do that. We compare others to our own passions, our own desires, our own codes. If someone treats you how you feel like you ought not to be treated, you're indignant. If someone fails to be what you perceive them to be, you're disappointed. If you think like me, you're living well. If you fail to think like me, act like me, talk like me, you're probably wrong. And you need to change. Think like I do. Talk like I do. I thought it was really funny. So this is an aside. Okay? So in our culture that is so diverse, um, on the day when uh, the uh, Supreme Court upheld gay marriage, millions of people on Facebook changed their profile to what? A rainbow flag. That's super diverse, isn't it? Everybody looking the exact same way Celebrate diversity, okay? But that's our culture, right? We think it's diverse, but it's not. It's diverse only as long as diverse is a good adjective. But it's not. However, look at how Paul speaks to the Gentiles. Look at how he speaks to the nonconformists in verses 14 through 16. And pay attention to what he's saying. For when Gentiles do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So, so nonconformists in here, your problems are twofold. First, uniform desires of any culture. Okay, I'm going to unpack this. It sounds really educated. Not that I'm educated, but it sounds educated. Uniform desires of any culture reflect a general law written in our hearts. What does that mean? In a culture that celebrates so much diversity, why are there standard moral norms across cultures, across language barriers, across economic boundaries? There has not been a culture on this earth that at some level agrees that murder is bad. We justify it. Can we murder babies? Sure. Can we murder Jews? Absolutely. Can we murder people who are in the land that we want to be in? Sure. Should we murder our own? No, probably not. Even Hitler showed discretion, right? There are people Hitler didn't kill because he was bound by law. He knew that it probably wasn't right. right? He wanted to be in charge of something. If he killed everybody in the whole world, he'd have nothing to be in charge of anymore. And what that says is that's because, not because human, we got together when we were made and we're like, what are some objective standards we can have when it comes to killing people? No, it's because God is gracious. And even on the hearts of those who reject God, he has not fully given us over to do evil continually. It's a grace when people don't kill. It's a bigger grace when murderous people are selective in killing. Because if left to our own hateful hearts, ain't nobody living except for me. But God has written that on our hearts. He's written honesty. He's written benevolence and care. So that's the first thing, is that there is a universal standard. We have to deal with that. Secondly, the problem with the nonconformist is that the caricature of an angel and a demon on your shoulder is dead on. It really is. You see, we have all met, loved, and hated our own conscience, haven't we? 
For us, we say, you know what? My parents lived according to the Bible. I'm not going to do that. I don't think that's right. I think it's foolishness. Uh, or I just think, if you're generally a good person, that's, that's I, I, was, I evangelized to a guy the other day who said, if people are generally good, I, I feel like they'll get into heaven. But here's the thing. We've all had this debate, right? Where we do something, and the angel with the harp and the cloud stands over here, and he's like, you shouldn't have done that. But then the devil over here with his pitchfork and his orange jumpsuit, red jumpsuit, I'm colorblind apparently, uh, he says, no, 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 this is why you did that. You weren't wrong to do that. Right, what Paul says, one accuses us and one excuses us. And, and here's why this is a bummer for you if you don't claim any moral code. You've become your own moral code. You wrote the rules, you established the boundaries, and you break your own conscience. You can't even write a law imperfect enough for you to follow. Even when we write the rules, we go to bed with self-regret and feelings of disappointment because our works condemn us even at our own self-made lowest common denominator. Even people who claim there's no standard have a problem of not reaching their own because their hearts are wicked. Paul then turns to the Jews here, to the conformists who say, and this is the camp, if you're from a Christian background like me, I tended towards the conformist category. You see, we, we seek to live like the Jews did in accordance and conformance with some sort of standard external to ourselves. We're coming under something rather than becoming something. We look at the Ten Commandments and we say, you know what, I haven't worshipped an idol, right? I've not gone to a Bo- the Buddhist land of a thousand Buddhas up in Arli and worshipped Buddha. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't slept with anyone. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't stolen, murdered. I haven't lied too much. I'm doing so much better than the nonconformists. I go to church on Sundays. I did a wana as a kid. I filled my crown. I was a skipper, right? Christians have weird cultural things. Um, but here, look at, look at Paul's language towards them, verses 17 through 24. But you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will, and approve what is excellent, because you're instructed from the law. If you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher, see, he's like, not only do you follow the law, but you're so much better. You're a light to the blind, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You are Mother Teresa with a PhD. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you not steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you not commit adultery? You abhor idols. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And that is a death blow to the Jews. They are righteous, Gentiles are not. And he says, you Jews boasting in the law, you're blaspheming my name before the Gentiles. The Gentiles aren't blaspheming my name. The problem is with you. You see, the problem with conformists is is we don't understand we're not taking a class for credit. We're not hoping for a C and seeing that as decent. We're all born into this world on the contingency of pass-fail. And we look at that law, we may boast in our accomplishments, look at what I've done for Jesus. Look at what I did with my attendance and with my body. We may boast in our abstinence, look at what I, ha- I haven't done. You can take confidence in the pros and in the cons you've avoided, but if you've ever broken one component of God's perfect law, you're a lawbreaker. You lied when you were two. Bummer for you. Lawbreaker. We understand that with other people, right? Legally, if I were to commit a crime, I am a criminal. Unless it's you. I'm not, I'm not a criminal. No, you, you were. You committed a crime. You were judged for your crime. You were convicted of your crime. You may keep 99 out of 100 of God's perfect laws, but to have broken one is to have broken the whole of it. 
And to boast in your own perfection, which is an illusion, no one's perfect, is to actually enthrone yourself above God. I can be perfect like God because I'm like God. I can meet his righteous standard because I'm righteous. I'm pure like God. So here's the thing. You have the Jews who are failing, the Gentiles who are failing. God promised to save the Jews, but both Jews and Gentiles now are under God's wrath. And Paul goes on to say this, and look at the standard Paul's calling us to. Verses 26 through 29. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, so uncircumcised is someone who's not a Jew, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You see, in order to avoid judgment, what, what Paul has said is you have to do good works. Do good, earn good. Do bad, earn bad. But more than doing good, you have to have a changed heart. It's not on the external side of things, are you okay? God looks further than that. He says, on the inside of things, are you okay? If you do good on the outside, but you're bad on the inside, you deserve wrath. If you look like you're doing bad on the outside, but you're doing it, you're attempting to do good on the inside, that man's better off. And this is the word right now. Everybody's trying to track what's going on. Who's doing good at this point? And we all want to know that, right? Because look at what Paul said in verse 14 of chapter 2. Where am I at here? Uh, verse 13, excuse me. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. At the core of our existence, we all want to be justified, don't we? Why did you, we want people to see what we did and say, I understand why you did that, you were right in doing it. We want to be justified by our teachers. We want to be seen as qualified, set apart, no longer under judgment, right, holy, true, pure, great. We want to be worshipped. But here's the problem. This is why the economy that Paul put forward breaks down. Good people get good things. Evil people get evil things. Because no one is good. No one has warranted justification from God's wrath. Because both Jews and Gentiles, both you and the most pagan person you could think of has run into the human stumbling block. The third point here that Paul's going to give us in verse, chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, he says this. What then? Are Jews any better off? He's responding. Well, should I be a Jew? Should I not be a Jew? What should I be, Paul? What ethnicity can I just change into to please God? Are the Jews any better? Not at all. We've already charged that both Jews and Greeks, everybody, is under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, that's a snake, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Why? There is no fear of God before their eyes. So the interesting thing here is that that's a really long quote. Paul's quoting things there. But he's quoting six, seven different Old Testament passages here that all say the same thing. The consistent theme throughout all of Scripture, you suck. You failed to live up to the standard. David said it, Solomon said it, Isaiah said it, Jesus said it. Just right there, he's pointing to the whole. Name a person who you think would justify you. He points out your flaws, and this is Paul's conclusion. Now pay attention. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. One day the whole world will be held accountable to God. For by 
works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Our efforts to earn God's favor by our own standard, by a different standard, our efforts to live up to God's standard only go to show that we're wildly incapable of doing so. When you run into a standard and you're like, think about what's your standard morality? Who do I want to be? What's right and wrong? When you run into that, it's only there to measure it. It can't make you righteous. It can't justify you. It just points, it says, must be this tall to ride, and you're down here. You don't have what it takes. We're all under judgment. Earlier Paul said, do good, get good. Do evil, get evil. It's hypothetical. No one can do good. Not even one. So here's the thing. Let's say you had to stand trial before God today. Trial before God, what would you point to? You're going to be judged according to your works. Righteousness is required. Wrath is required. Where do you fall? Why are you righteous? Why should you avoid wrath? Right? This is for your life. These are important questions. Okay? If you were getting on a plane without engines, the question would be, how am I going to live? You'd want answers. If you were getting, if you're sitting before the judgment seat of God, you'd want an answer. What's your confidence before God? Do you point to how you generally, in most cases, lived in accord with those around you? I was generally a good guy. Got along with people. Gave a lot of money. Volunteered a lot of time. Got good grades. Great friend. Good listener. Excellent husband. Great girlfriend. What are the times you didn't do that? What are those times where you were hateful, arrogant, deceitful, angry? Or would you point to your obedience to what you perceive as right biblical living? I never murdered. I never slept around. I wasn't a drunkard. But did you have lustful thoughts? Once? Did you lie? Once? You too are deserving of God's wrath for in the same way you think judgment is due to those who sinned against you. How would you expect God to not punish and judge those who have sinned against Him? God cannot overlook your sin. And what Paul is saying is deep in the heart of every human, we know it. We know judgment is real in our hearts, so we judge, we merit, we attempt to earn, we attempt to cover, and we attempt to hide. But more importantly for each and every one of you, judgment is real in history. Paul says there is coming a day where God's wrath will be revealed and his righteous judgment will take place and the hearts of man will be known through Jesus Christ. You have no legs to stand on. You're tied on the tracks. Not only can you not break the ropes, but your arms are asleep. Even if you had strength in your arms, you can't break it. And the freight train is coming. But this brings up Paul's wonderful and final point, the gospel of righteousness. So imagine... You're here. You've had me yelling at you now for one and a half sermons. They just read two and a half chapters of bad news. But look at what Paul says. But now, great words, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. And although the law and the prophets bore witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction See that phrase? That's important. We're going to come back to it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified. How? We want that. By His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine 
forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show the righteousness, show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is the most important paragraph you will ever read your entire life. For those who deny Christ, it seals their doom. For those who worship Christ, it assures your salvation. The righteousness of God leads to our justification. How can I become right? Because God is right. How can I become pure? Only because God is pure. Look at what he says, verses 23 through 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through Christ Jesus. We are justified. Prepositions are important. By his grace as a gift. Okay? Do you understand that? How are you justified? Do you understand the legal ramifications of that? Because here's the thing. In Christ, it's, it's not just that we're pardoned, that we're forgiven. You are pardoned. You are forgiven. But justification is a legal term. And you know what it means? It's not that God swept it under the rug and says, we'll deal with it later. What it means is that you have stood trial with all of the nastiness of Romans 2. Your insolent, hateful hearts, you've stood trial and not only has the punishment been removed, but the judge has spoken and said, this man needs no punishment. This man is right. He is declared free. He is declared pure. He is no longer in the wrong. To be justified before God is to be found innocent of the crimes we know to be personally true in our own hearts. How does this happen? How then are we saved? By His grace, as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How? Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. Reckoning back to what we saw in chapter 2. Why are you alive right now? Not because God thinks you have a bright, shiny star in your life that's going to bloom one day. You're alive so that you can repent. And God in His grace has granted us breath because the cross has given us space. Now here in this text is a wonderfully, critically important but difficult word to understand. Propitiation. That word has no meaning outside of the theological realm of things. And here's what propitiation means. It says God put Christ forward as propitiation. That's the means of our salvation. We want to know what that means. Standing before God, if we're pointing to Jesus, what does it mean? We want to know big words. Propitiation means a satisfaction. Chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3, how many times do we see see words like judgment, judging, righteous wrath, just wrath, rightly judged? You see, Christ saved us not only because he removed God's wrath against our sin, although he did. Christ saved us and he removed that wrath because he satisfied the wrath of God. Not through a mathematic equation, not through the redemption of silver, the granting of a kingdom. The scandal of the righteousness of God is that our justification is not tied to the removal of God's death penalty. It's tied to the execution of it. Why are you right before God? Because Christ died for it. He took your sins. He paid the price. And in this, you want to see the righteousness of God? 
Don't go looking for lights in the sky. Don't go dreaming for something more. Look at the gospel and the scandal of grace in an innocent man who came and died. This is what Paul says. This is what the law pointed to. This is what the prophets pointed to. It didn't point to your effort. It didn't point to your potential. It didn't point to your goodness. It pointed to Jesus. The law doesn't save. Morality doesn't save. Commandments don't save. Church attendance doesn't save. Civil service doesn't save. Jesus Christ saves and we're granted access to that through faith. The most powerful five-letter word you will ever know. Through faith. You see, we in various ways, to various extents, we all try to justify our existence. Either through the burden of a secular legacy, what we're going to leave behind, or through the efforts of religious rule-keeping. Yet the wages of our labor are of cosmic indifference compared to the indictment of death which hangs over our heads. But Christ has gone before. Christ has lived according to a perfect standard which we ourselves cannot attain. What we measured as insurmountable, Christ became in perfect holiness and truth. What we earned as a just reward Christ endured as the perfect sacrifice and what he earned in regards to his faithfulness and God's righteousness were given access to by faith. By faith we see the righteousness of God. By faith in Jesus we find not only our salvation, we find rest from the work of judgment. No more scales, no more equations, no more burdens, no more effort. Grace. You see, the joy of the gospel is not that we avoided judgment, but that we have already had one stand judged in our place. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You see, in a world of standards, there's one you need to be sure of. And that's the place of Christ in your life. Will you believe this? It's what our series is called Learning to Live where you start as Christians, the thing that shapes right behavior and good works is not the desire to be good, but the idea that you've already been declared good in Jesus Christ. Anything done out of a motivation not rooted in the righteousness of Christ given to us through faith is a labor in the wind. But Jesus has given us access to God through taking our sins because he is the just and the justifier. To learn to live, we must first learn to believe. That's my prayer for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your good, good word. Lord, we, you, you've cracked open the window in kind of this muggy room Paul prepared for us in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. But those words, but now the righteousness of God has been made clear to us. It's no longer a mystery. We're no longer scratching at, at, at doors that won't open. We're no longer chasing the wind. We're no longer banging our heads against the wall, hoping that what we do might someday pay off for our benefit. But you have shown us mercy. You have shown us grace. You have shown us righteousness. So Lord, make us believe. Lord, bring us into the joy of Christ where we rest from our labors because Christ has gone before. He has absorbed our wrath so that we may have His life forever and ever and ever. And may this book of Romans take what we know to be the objective baseline of our existence. Faith in a gracious and loving just judge. May we not only stand and say, praise God, I'm deemed right. But may we say, Lord, now teach me how to live as one who's redeemed. Teach me to live and to labor and to not exert effort to the earning of my salvation, but to exert effort as the fruit of it. God, you are good to us. We are filled with joy. Praise in your name. Amen.